A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Erwin LaCour is the acknowledged founder and leader of the concept of natural movement. He's been called one of the fittest men in the world and a fitness visionary by Men's Health magazine. Erwin was born in France. He grew up with a black and white TV, no remote, no video games, no personal computers, and no internet. He spent his youth in the woods, living in the suburbs of Paris, maybe 30 miles away. His father encouraged him to run, crawl, climb, jump. He was introduced to karate at 15 years old. She taught him discipline, method, and commitment. By the time Erwin was 19, he'd trained for seven years in natural and urban settings, climbing bridges, balancing on high places, jumping on roofs, walking on all fours in the underground, swimming in cold water, and practicing all manner of breath training and fighting techniques. At 27, he started a period of sailing, Olympic weightlifting, rock climbing, long-distance triathlon, trail running, and jiu-jitsu. At 33, he started researching European history of physical education, discovering forgotten training methods. He tells an incredible story of coming across someone who seemed to be dead, walking alone one night in China, taking him home and caring for him. Oh, I do want to say this, that Erwin came to the United States, originally granted an O-1 visa. It's given only to those who demonstrate extraordinary ability in their field, whether it be arts, sports, business, education, or the sciences. I think Irwin is a pretty remarkable guy. I think if you're not familiar with his work and you enjoy movement, you'll enjoy this interview. Irwin, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you here. Irwin, will you tell me, please, what's life about? Life is to me the practice of energy at every level so love breathing the energy we all, everybody knows you know eating food of course and then breathing well if, if you if you pay attention then it's it's really what it is about to understand that all this energy, but beyond the conceptual understanding, it's really to practice that energy to make yourself thrive. That's the idea to me. Yeah. When you meet someone new, or if somebody asks you who you are and what you do, what do you, how do you often answer that question, or what do you like to say? I like to, just to say that I'm a, I'm a teacher, because usually when people ask you what you do, you know, who you are... Well, people rarely ask you who you are. They ask you, what is it that you do? So I say, I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I own a company. What is it about? Well, it's about fitness, but it's the natural movement type of fitness. Okay, what is this about? Uh, opens plenty of doors. Then I can say that also I'm an author. 
but uh, who who I am, I'm a family man. I'm a father, I'm a husband, that's really what matters to me. And what I do matters as well, but it's, it's, it's not what's priority, definitely not. Yeah. You know, I mentioned this when I invited you on this show that I heard you on Mark Devine's podcast on The Unbeatable Mind, and I really loved the conversation that you had. I loved hearing, you know, an East, East Coast U.S.-born, you know, former Navy commander talking with a Frenchman who's also had his share of experiences around the world and in some ways having a very, very different background, but in some ways some things very much in common. Right and and the physicality and the just the different approach to being strong, being being healthy, being mentally tough, and I really love this concept that you've that you've popularized um, about natural movement. Will you say a little about what that is and why is it something that our world is really missing today, or so many people are looking for? It's really a challenge that you are asking me because you're asking me to tell a little about it when I just published a, a book that's 480 pages about it and my publisher asked me to cut 200 pages about <laughs> it on top of the fact that I had already dumbed it down to you know like the really the absolute essential that were really essential in my mind so um, yeah natural movement is let's think about uh, let's let's use a simple metaphor how, how does any wild animal move? What, what do they need to do to become and stay fit? Ask yourself about a, a wild tiger, an eagle, a dolphin, all these completely different animal species. They, from birth to death, their physical behavior has to do with not just surviving, but thriving in the wild. And for that, they are using movements that are species-specific, and my question is, why on earth should it be any different for us humans? Because when we look at kids and the way they move without any pre preconception, without any instruction, they crawl and then they learn to stand Then they will run and hike and, and walk and step up and down and crawl more and climb and balance and jump and lift and carry things and throw and catch things. They all do all of all these things instinctually because they are evolutionary movement skills. It's overall the whole scope of those what I call natural movement abilities represent our original and universal movement behavior, physical behavior. That's our physical nature to do that. The same way eagles fly and dolphins dive and, and, and jump off the, the surface of the ocean and wild tigers sprint and climb and jump off and pounce and do all these movements. Okay. So we can become very skilled, very physically capable, very strong, very agile by understanding that we too have those skills, those natural movement skills that are specific to human beings and practicing that. That's what I, that's what I teach. Uh, but that's also uh, the reason why I have developed a method called MoveNet that I've been teaching for about 12 years now. Now, this book is beautiful. I understand you just published it in January, and it's clear this is a labor of love. I understand you've been, you know, there's really been more than a decade. I mean, it's a life's 
learning and experience that you've you've put in in these pages, and and I love it's very visual. Uh, as a nice for me, a nice combination of of text and uh, and pictures, and instruction, too. Right. Um, I love one of the things that you talk about is about this um, about zoo humans. <laughs> about in a way, it's like we we've confined ourselves, we've caged ourselves, and uh, you know, nobody nobody likes to be trapped, nobody likes to be stuck, and yet we've done this to ourselves. And the absurdity, I think, reading, like listening to you, reading some of what you've written, hearing about the kind of absurdity of going to a gym because our lives don't already provide enough variation and physical challenge. And then even when we're in the gym, we're using these machines that they're not natural, but we're isolating, you know, different things that if it was a survival situation or really just an enjoyment thing, it's not necessarily conducive to like what you were saying about thriving about being fully alive, about enjoying life. So I think this book is definitely one whose time has come. But if you were to say, like, who did you write it for and what did you hope it would do for them? How do you think about that? For everyone, really. For everyone. Um, everyone in the modern world and everyone, in when I say the modern world, is whoever is living by the modern standards of you know growing up going to school being already confined in classrooms sitting hours a day and then you find a, a desk job one day and you keep doing that for the rest of your life you keep living in in cities and everything is boxed and all your environments are artificial the air is artificial the light is artificial the surface is artificial the food is artificial and obviously, that means that a lot of our behaviors become, not all of them, and not fully, but a lot of our behaviors become artificial as well. And that, for that, we all pay a price. And that is something that I've realized a long time ago. And as, as, as long as I can remember, when I was going on hikes with my parents and my family, and I was realizing already that they didn't have the drive to move that I had as a little kid. And I was wondering why already. I was wondering how come they didn't have that joy of movement. Why is it that they didn't want to climb those walls and jump off the walls and have that freedom? They seemed to be just trapped in their head talking about stuff. And uh, that, that exuberance that I had for movement, um, I never wanted it to be tamed and uh, it, it really was a suffering for me to stay, to, to just stay, you know, s still in, in classrooms, even though actually I forced myself because I was actually a good boy. I was not a, a rebel that way. Uh, but at the same time, I just, it, I, I was dying inside, really. It was horrible. And um, when it came to studying and, and thinking of what would be my job one day, I could not force my head to to accept, to simply accept that I would live the same way. I had to find something else. So you ask me, who did I write this book for? I wrote this book for whoever has experienced the same, and God knows that's millions and millions of people. Whoever has questioned that idea of normalcy, that I, and, and 
a big part of that normalcy that is forced upon us since we're little kids has to do with physical idleness, has to do with just being still physically, not don't do this, don't do that, don't climb that, you're going to hurt yourself, you're going to get dirty, you're going to dirty the walls, you're going you're gonna to break something, you're going to break your leg. You're gonna, it's constant, constant repression. It's a behavioral repression. And it makes us sad. It makes us depressed. That's the start of depression. Depression is the number one problem in, in of our modern days and modern lifestyle. Depression. People are depressed. A huge part of that has to do with a lack of movement. And even the, you were talking about, you know, modern gyms and people going to more indoors, sitting on machines, having their exercise movements completely shaped by the machines is absolutely artificial. There's no freedom to it. It's still work. It's still boring. And yeah, there's no freedom to this. So it's hard to think of exercise that way as being antidepressor since it revolts around the exact same principles, the exact same mindset, the exact same behavior that caused our problem in the first place. Let people move. So about 20% of that book is about the philosophy where I have really packed that, that manifesto with very powerful insights to make people realize, look, it was never supposed to be that way in the beginning and in the first place. And it's not a fatality. And it can be changed. And this is, this is what should be instead. And what should be instead is not a creation of my mind. What should be instead is an observation of what used to be. And that still is in many places where people live more naturally. But it's also a mindset and a behavior that still is alive in every young child. Yeah. And that adults are busy trying to just kill off every day. Just yeah. try to minimize and shrink every day. That's I've always stand against that. I always will. And that whole book is about that. Basically, well, the whole manifesto of the book is is a very philosophical rant against that. And then the rest, and that's eighty percent of the book, is a practical how to on how to break through. Yeah. No, I I really love that, and um, I can tell that this is not just you know this is not just a product for you. Right. This is and it's not even maybe a lifestyle. I mean, it's a mission. How do you how do you think of the work you're doing? Highly. <laughs> the way I think of the work I'm doing. Yeah, highly. Um, I, I like to say I don't I actually don't take myself seriously. I know I sound super serious. But my <laughs> wife would tell you uh, I'm such a, a kook. You know, I yeah. just I'm a funny guy. Uh but when I, when it comes to talk about what I do, I take it very seriously, um, because I can see it. Just I just look everywhere around me right now. Yeah. I'm in an office and I, I, I'm sitting. It's an office work. It's an office environment. But trust me, I agree. I mentally agree, and I'm actually uh, enjoy to participate in that conversation with you, Brian, right now. But only because it's ninety minutes. Yeah, and then yeah, for I have sure. To get, I have to no. get out. It's yeah. not. It's not because I mean, actually, the convo with you could, I know, could last much longer. Yeah. But me sitting here in that environment could not. And I've yeah. I've designed a lot of things in my life to avoid that fate. Yeah. 
Well, and speaking of fate, you know, this is one thing when you and I connected by email, we talked a little a bit back and forth about our fathers and about the fates that our father that be it sounds so passive to say the fates that befell our fathers because I know for my dad it was a choice, right? Every choice you make is a choice not to do or be every other way and and one of the reasons I'm I feel called to do the work I'm doing of helping people live the best version of themselves is because I saw my dad, even though he achieved phenomenal success as an entrepreneur, you know, he paid a very high price physically for many years, emotionally, you know, spiritually even. But when I saw my father in the hospital after having had surgery for his legs to be amputated due to complications from diabetes, I don't think I knew it in that moment. But looking back, that was when I decided two things. One, that would never be me. And two, I would do what I could to help encourage and inspire and motivate others to avoid a similar fate. But it sounds like you and I have a little bit of commonality in that way. Um, Would you be willing to share a bit about just what your relationship with your dad was like and how that might have shaped the work that you're doing now or who you are today? Sure. Um, Okay. It wasn't good. Um, It wasn't good. When I was a little kid... um, he uh the good thing is that he 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 took me often into the woods where the house where we lived it was in the, on the countryside and it had this this great forest just just a few feet away almost with those boulders in, in what area will you, will you share with me where where was this that was the suburbs of of paris okay it was about, I don't know, 30 miles away from Paris. Mm. So, and, uh, so it was a fantastic playground. And it wasn't just there. It's, my parents, would, we would go on a hike all the time. Whenever possible, I would go on a hike with them. And that's where my dad would encourage me to jump into his arms from a height and to climb up and, you know, scale up the, those boulders and do all these movements that, I didn't feel ready for, but he had that kind of instinct of pushing me to do these things, to yeah, go it, beyond it, my fears. In fact, in the in the book, you share an experience about a hill, right? Uh, Will yeah. you talk about that? So it's, I was so young that I, I did not re- I did not remember that. He told me once in these rare moments when we could have a, a little conversation about the past, and he said, "I remember that time." where you were so young you can't even remember and um, it had rained and there was a muddy hill and uh, I climbed on top and I left you at the at the bottom and then I let you climb it alone and then it's, and I was sliding and sliding and I was starting to be you know emotionally upset and then to ask for help and uh and he wouldn't help me. And he would say, no, you can do it. You've got to do it. Climb. You've got to do it. And then finally I resolved to just just do my very best to do it. And I did. And you were like three three or four years old. Is that right? Yeah, actually. It's funny because when he, when he told me about that story, I did not remember it. But then it seemed that I still had some memory of it, actually. Hmm. I believe I'd have my own memory of it. It's a little, you know... A little blurry, but at the same time, um, he, he, he said he, he regretted it. Wow! And he, well, that he, f- he felt bad. 
because I was just a really little boy and it was maybe a little too early to teach those lessons. I think that those lessons have a very, very high value actually when you're a little. Little boy, little girl, doesn't matter. It's a very, very high value kind of lesson. It's you're on your own and if you really fight, if you really pay attention, you can find a way to overcome that obstacle. And if you understand that lesson, then it will apply to anything in your life. Retrospectively, I totally understand what what was his 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 approach back then. What was his point? But he felt bad probably because I was really really young. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> really, I think that um, I would not actually have anything against him for that that event. For other things, certainly, but not about that. I think every time he encouraged me to be more brave. And uh, he, he, wasn't just, uh, he wasn't just yelling at me or demanding that I do something impossible or dangerous. He did that with enough um, realistic expectation that I was able to do it and to overcome a certain level of difficulty. So it was a kind of intuitive education, very important for life because that kind of mindset always helped me in life to just take a little more risk to be a little braver, uh, to have confidence that I could overcome any obstacle. So great life lesson. Yeah. When when you were a little older, it sounds like there were some other ways. Because I see this with pretty much everyone, right? In fact, Tony Robbins says every life is either an example or a warning. And I think, right, most lives are probably both if you look at it that way. And, and so – you know, I wonder with your father if there's ways that you emulate, you know, things, qualities that he had that you aspired to follow and others that maybe you resolved to never be that way and, and how that might have shaped, you know, the person that you've become. For the most part, a counterexample, unfortunately. Um, but uh, if I just look at the positives, um, yeah, for instance, he wasn't a social person and uh, my social skills I had to develop later on, like much later on because I, was, I grew up to be a very, very shy teenager and then when I became, became a young adult that I forced myself to uh, practice the inability to just be comfortable with myself and with people or around people. But it took me some time. Um, so you see... There's two, this, you say, or Tony Robbins says, either an example or warning. It's yeah, either example or counterexample. So the example of the counterexample was he wasn't not being a so, so, social person because of choice, but probably, probably because of his own inability. Yeah, that, that's a wise, in, I think that's a very generous insight beyond just judging him for being a certain way, by the way. Yeah, I believe so. So, whereas I acquired the skills to be a, to be able, when I choose so, to be yeah. social with people, yeah. um, which which has a lot to do. Number one is with just self confidence, but a lot of people who have no self confidence are also very social people and very skilled with social events so self-confidence is not necessarily it's not mandatory to be a social anymore 
to be a you know like a person who just like to hang out with people and be well and and uh, but but at the same time in my life I'm not a person who who's trying to socialize and create networks and this and that I'm very well on my own I'm very well with just my my best friend who's my wife and my children and a few friends that I see sometimes I don't I don't need to always be surrounded by people. Yeah, but but you're doing that anyway, though, right? I mean, like I loved, I saw MoveNet is doing a training in my hometown here of Salt Lake. And I was like, that is amazing. It's It seems like it's everywhere lately. So even though you maybe haven't aspired to do that consciously, it's happened, which is pretty remarkable, don't you think? Well, I wanted to create a community. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's happening. So that's a good thing. Yeah, I that's like awesome. That. Well, and, and on the topic, while we're on the topic of family, I just, I want to ask about this because I loved when I learned that you're, that you're in New Mexico. I get to visit New Mexico once or twice a year and, and I love, it really is the land of enchantment, right? And, and in the back of your book where you mention that you are a father, that you're a husband, and I just want to take a moment just to ask because your kids' names are a little unique for um, how many people name Feather, Eagle, and Sky. Tell me a little bit about what inspires you to name your kids these names my wife is a she's a an enrolled an officially enrolled member of a Cherokee nation so she's she's native and uh, so it makes sense that our children would have unusual but powerful names um, so when uh, yeah, so that just makes sense. Our yeah. all our three children are also enrolled members of the Cherokee Nation. So, um, interestingly, when we um, whenever we've had some some physical some health you know ch- checkups to do for them for her when she was pregnant, and we would go to the local Indian hospital, Native Indian hospital, and uh, and we show up, and clearly we don't have dark hair and uh, you know relatively dark we, we kind of have fair complexions my wife has blue eyes she's 70% native and so but so people look at us and be like what are these what are these European people are doing here wow. uh, but yeah that's the way it is yeah, my wife amazing. is a, she, she's a very amazing person very wise um very healthy, very strong, very creative, very loving. Um, she's really a goddess in every way, shape, and form. And uh, yeah, she's my best teacher. So the reason why our children are called that way is because she, cho- she chose those names, and I agreed. Yeah. They're beautiful names. No, they, they are beautiful. And I know names, they matter so much. They have such an impact on how other people treat us, how we think of ourselves, I think ultimately what we become. And uh, I loved learning that your name means dragon, right? In a, is it in a Celt language? In a, in a Breton language, which is a Celtic language. It's one of the several Celtic nations. You know, you've got the Scots and, of course, the Irish and the um, the Cornish, the Gaelic, the, the I mean the Welsh. Anyways, and then you have the Britons. So, in in that language, an Ehwant is a dragon, and 
so there is a strong assumption that the origin of the name is is that word dragon because the explanation for my almost almost all my life is that it came from another name that has nothing to do with that and that it was a, the the Britain translation but that didn't make any sense and recently came that new translation that new explanation for that first name and I thought okay that's really cool that explains a lot <laughs> yeah what what did the, what was the translation of the other name uh, it had to do with uh, another n- name called Eve which has to do with uh, I think Ivy the 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 tree which is mm. uh, one of the sacred trees for uh, for the Celts and um, yeah so there's a saint called Saint Eve and uh, but Eve and, er- and Erwan are not at all the same and the old the old uh, pronunciation I don't even know if anybody's interested in this but <laughs> the old pronunciation of the of the name because in English or in the US I, people ask me what's your name I say Erwan because that's easy for people to pronounce the French pronunciation is Erwan but the original Breton pronunciation would be Erwan and Erwan pronounces you know sounds ex- pretty much like Erwant which is the dragon no, that's the story I, behind the first name. No, I, I think that's really cool. And and I do think people will be interested if, you know, for no other reason when they think about the power of a name where I, I actually think many people don't think about that deeply where their name is an aspect of their life that's like the rest of their life that they've been handed and they've stepped into and then it becomes in some ways a limitation. And this idea that we can choose an identity for ourselves. And I love that. You know, these two interpretations, his name could be from this or from this, and you chose one that sounds like it's more empowering from you. And and so I can see that's in some ways a different life. So I want to I switch gears and I want to ask you about a couple of things. Um, one is this story about when you were alone in China and you came across a man who seemed to be dead. As This sounded to me a little bit like the story of the Buddha. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you'll kind of give us the background on what happened there and what, how did that have an impact on you? Well, funny that I, I shared that story with you, which I've shared, I've shared with, I don't know, my wife for sure, but I don't even know if I've shared it with anybody else. Um, yeah, at some point of my past life, I, I worked in China. And um, I spent a total of two years there, actually. And, uh, well, at the beginning of that that uh, that part of my life, there, there was a factory uh, where I was working that was in the, in the Shanghai area. How old were you at this time? I was in my uh, mid, mid-20s, yeah. And uh, I think I was 20... 25, 26. And um, one night, I decided I decided to go on a stroll. It actually, it was yeah, very late. I was working on a, a manufacturing process that actually I had created, and uh, that led me to from France to China, to finding a partner where I could. And so, 
so I could make it make make this manufacturing process a reality, which took me to that factory where I would spend hours on my own, often working late at night and working on experimentation on basically baking PVC in silicon molds and things like that. So this is part of my life nobody knows about. A few, very few people knows know about. And um, at the end of uh, so. Early morning, late at night, early morning. I don't remember exactly, but I go on a, on a hike. And then after a mile or two, I stum- I'm completely alone in that suburban area. And there is that body on the floor. And the guy is half naked. And there's really nobody around. And I get closer and I'm like, oh, my God, that must be he- the person did not seem to be breathing and I'm like am I finding a dead body right there that, that's, that's crazy what's, what's going on his pants were down he was looking extremely frail and very dirty and I took his pulse and there was a little of pulse very frail and the breathing was so shallow that it totally looked like the person was was not alive anymore and then right away I I have to think. Okay, what what do I do to help? What can I what can I do? And you know, back then I didn't have s- smartphones. Um, there was really nobody around, so I I put it. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know why I have pro- problems with my speech, speech right now. But I I took him on my back and I carried him back to the apartment where I was hosted, and right away I decided that it would probably be a good idea to give him a bath and because he he was his smell was really horrendous and so i thought hey um the person is is clearly exhausted and, and needs a bath i'm going to put put him in the bath and by the time i put him in the bath man the guy woke up in a scream and he 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 woke up basically he woke up and he probably thought he was wondering wait what am i doing here and this this white man is there. Maybe he wants to kill me or something. I don't know. The guy was completely panicked. Was he was he drunk before? Do you think, or did did he get robbed or something? I mean, no. I think that he was a homeless person and that he was dying of starvation. Wow. And uh, that, that's what that's what it was. I think he was uh, a very very miserable person with no help. I don't know. Um, and also, I had, I, I knew some Chinese, but not enough to actually have a conversation with him. But at this point, really, there's no conversation to be had. The guy's in a panic, and um, I had to calm him down and show him, "Look, I'm just trying to help you. I just want to help you." And then he let me give him a bath. I gave wow. this man a bath, and then I, I, he could not do anything for himself. He could not stand. On his own feet, um, and so I dried him. I dried him. I put some of my clothes on him, and then I put him in my bed, and he felt asleep right away. I made him actually. I made his, uh, made him uh, uh, a tea. Had a bit of tea. I made him some some soup, and uh, he couldn't eat anything. He fell asleep right away. The next morning, I went and I I went to the office and say, Hey, well. I need some help. Um, I found somebody. 
so they didn't know what I was saying. Anyways, they sent somebody over, and God, it was a big mistake because the guy they sent him over thought didn't understand it, and thought that basically the guy sneaked in my in my oh, no. bed at night or something. Started to ask him question, and the guy was the poor guy was so traumatized and and scared that he could not answer and the guy went over and started to yell at him and then he slapped him in the face and I was horrified and I jumped on him and said, you stop doing that right now. Anyways, they called the police and they took him away and I had to ask and be like, he hasn't done anything right. I was just trying, I mean, done anything wrong. I was just trying to help him and, um, and I was told later on by the uh, the wife of the of the owner of the factory that they had taken him to a special place for you know homeless people that he would be treated right and everything, um, but that I should not have done that. And then that now all the towels were dirty <laughs> because the, I was you know we were sharing that apartment and. I asked the translator, I put my hand on that sculpture. There was a sculpture of a Buddha on her office. I put my hand on the Buddha and said, it's true. The towels are dirty, but my soul is is clean. Wow. Translate that, please. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's all there was to do. I mean, I don't know. There was nothing else to do. There was nothing else I could do. But... um, there was no question that I was going to help this man. I was the only person around, so it was my responsibility. It was whatever you call it, karma, whatever. It was brought to me to do something. It, yeah. Every, a lot of moments like that in life, it's just, it's just about choices. And you're presented with opportunities to choose and experience who, to experience who you've chosen to be. If you've chosen to be a certain person, then wow. those those opportunities will show up that will give you a chance to manifest that. Yeah. And, and as I hear you share that story, which is, which is amazing. Um, I think about how that might have been a different way of being maybe, um, from who you were when you were younger, maybe being, I understand you were a a bit rebellious. You were not willing to, you know, conform to the society exactly as it, it was organized and so forth. And, and internally, I actually, I, yeah. internally, I was internally, I was rebellious externally. Yeah. No, <laughs> but no, that that's amazing. Well, tell me about the time. I mean, what a tragic loss with the Notre Dame, right? The recent fire there. But, um, I understand that you climbed it at one point and not only did you climb the scaffolding outside, but you actually carried a, a drum up. Is that, is that right? Will you tell, tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> what was that about? Yeah, I think, um, so I was in my early 20s, and back then, it, I, I, I talk about a little, briefly, about that in my book, at the beginning, is that when I was 19, I met this crazy guy, um, who was known because he had jumped off a helicopter by an Iceland, I mean, by a an iceberg in, in Iceland, or in Greenland, and that was for uh, he did that with no uh, no wetsuit or anything. He just did that with a swim trunk, and that was for a 
a brand for men, like men's underwear or something like that. And then, but of course, he didn't do that as a prank. That was part of his philosophy of life, where he practiced breathing and uh, vegetarianism back then, uh, barefoot. Uh, he was always barefoot. And uh, I mean, the whole thing completely matched with my mindset. So when I heard about this guy, I decided to join him. And there you go, I started, you know, I was better at my karate training. It was everything I wanted. It was rebellious beyond expectation. Um, it was anti-normalcy beyond expectation. I loved it. And um, I fully, like, immersed myself in his practice and philosophy, fasting, everything that today, by the way, has become a specific trend of his own, like... You call it barefoot running or barefoot Irving. Okay, we did that. Uh, you call it intermittent fasting. We did that. You call it, um, you know, eating local, seasonal, non-processed. We did that. Uh, breathing exercises, cold immersions. We did that like almost every day. Uh, Climbing, scaffoldings, jumping from roof to roof, we did that. Today, all of those are, they've become those like things, then they all have those thought leaders. But back then, what I did was all of this, literally. And it was back to Notre Dame. So that crazy guy that I was following, back then I was in my early 20s, he was in his late 40s and then early 50s. He turned himself into more of an artistic, artistic guy, so he started to write poetry, and then he played the kettlebell. Not the kettlebell, the kettle drum. And, um, and then he had the idea of, on New Year's Eve, to climb on the cathedral that was then renovated already. So that's 25 years ago. And to go... You know, like this, on the front of the cathedral, and there is that huge circle-shaped sculpture that's called a rosette, rosette, a very important part of the structure of the cathedral. And with the scaffoldings, we were, I was able to, to jump over the fence and climb from the outside of the scaffolding, so I could not use stairs. I had to climb outside, so holding to just a, a bar of metal. In the, in the winter? In the winter, with wind, and then the also, of course, the height, because that was probably uh, 90 feet high. And um, to go to the, the cathedral is much higher, right? But to go to that place in the center. And so, and I tied the, the drum with a, a scarf on my back. So it was just balanced. And it was it was tied across my my chest and my shoulder, so one mistake mean, meant that I would have fallen and and probably died. But it was it was crazy time. So I did that, and when he reached the the center just in front of Rosette, he blew up a uh, like a, what's it called uh, a flare 
red flare and starting chanting and, and beating the drum like crazy. <laughs> and people, because it was New Year's Eve, people down there, they were going wild. And they were dancing and and screaming and it was crazy. And then he got caught on video and uh, and it's on, you can see it on YouTube actually. Yeah. You can wow. see me, you can see me jumping over the fence and, and the guy who's climbing with the the kettle drum in his back, that's me. <laughs> but that's just one of those crazy things we did, all right? That's not not the only one. We also broke into the Louvre, the museum, uh, got chased by <laughs> by uh, <laughs> by dogs and then by about 40 cars of the whole place all around was locked with police cars everywhere and on the roofs and stuff and the, whatever the fuck it was some terrorist stuff or I don't know back then already we did plenty of crazy things alright we, we jumped we jumped oh whatever a lot of crazy things <laughs> lots of lots of stories I could really re, uh, write a whole book about it yeah you know sometimes I marvel at the fact that any of us make it to adulthood but hearing your stories especially you and staying out of prison for any of these kinds of stunts and activities you've done. How many times did you ever get arrested? Uh, about three times, if I remember well. Uh, wow. But but uh, but was always released uh, very soon after because really I never did anything wrong, anything really criminal. Yeah, it's you not know, malicious. But- just it, well, no, there was nothing malicious about it. Okay, all right. So it, there's not even a law saying, <laughs> I don't know. There's not, I don't know. What can you? What can they do or say? Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. you climb. You climb on the scaffoldings. Okay, we did that. What are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, in just a moment, I want to transition us. Um, before I do, I just want to ask you about this. It's the first after you get through the manifesto in, in, uh, the practice of natural movement, you, the very first movement you talk about is breathing. And, and so I know you cover a lot. There's probably 12 pages in there and, and a lot of, um, I enjoyed reading. I learned quite a few new things about this simple, but so infinitely deep practice. If, if, uh, if I were to ask you, what is it like, why is breathing so important and how is it that so many of us are doing it so wrong? <laughs> and what can we do to to thrive through our breath? It's just like, uh, you know, breathing is a, it's a physiological function, but it's also a, a pattern and just like other physiological pattern or like movement, for instance. Why is it that people the way they stand or the way they sit and the way they move why is it so stiff why is it so clumsy the 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 problems with our physical and physiological patterns is that they are negatively altered by by uh, by the modern life again so people are stressed people are they deal with inflammation in their body because of food and stress it's everything is connected so when breathe breathing is going to going to be altered that's one of those manifestation of 
a lifestyle that's already suboptimal. So the way it translates usually is that people breathe through their mouth instead of through their nose. And then they are breathing very shallow, which means that instead of breathing just a few times per minute, they breathe like 20, 30 times per minute and only at the using their upper chest, upper body, upper ribcage. So that is not the healthiest breathing pattern at all. And uh, when you change that, when you revert it to nose breathing and abdominal breathing and a calmer, slower breathing cycle, then there are a number of physiological adjustments that take place and that make you healthier, calmer. So um, I provide explanations in the book because, of course, you know, there's always the possibility of talking about the science behind it. But I think that the best is the experience because you can't, you can't, you can't think about the science of things, the science of everything. You know, go outside because you'll get vitamin D if you get sunlight. And, um, you know, if... My point is, there's much more to life that is simply felt, that has to be experienced. You can think about it all the time. So breathing is one of those fundamental functions which, if you really want to change it, you want to pay attention more. You want to pay attention right now. You want to pay attention to how you breathe. When I was a kid, um, my first exposure to the importance of breathing was through my clarinet teacher. And the very first lesson, before I even touched the instrument, he asked me a question. And that very first question was, what is the strongest muscle in your body? And I had no answer for that. I thought, well, I don't know, maybe my, maybe my legs? And he said, no, it's a diaphragm. I'm like, my what? <laughs> your diaphragm... And then he starts to explain to me what the diaphragm is, and then he, he gives me cues and makes me feel, and then I start to breathe from the abdomen, which I did, but I did not do consciously. And then it became conscious, it, it became even more conscious that then I really had to use and control such abdominal breathing for my clarinet practice if I wanted to to recover well and to breathe well and to have power in my notes. And then later on, uh, when I was a teenager, I started karate. The great thing is that because of my clarinet practice, I already had breath control, great wow. breath control, which was very, very helpful, especially because in karate, you're going to get kicked or punched in the abdomen all the time which you need to keep your abs contracted all the time, or at least to be able to contract them extremely rapidly if you don't want to, you know, to be, uh, uh, to, to lose your breath. And um, so it means that you have to breathe abdominally despite of the intense abdominal tension. 
and uh, so, and when I, I met that guy that I trained with in Paris, it was again the same. It was all about breath control, abdominal breathing, through the nose, relaxation, uh, very quiet breathing. And then, but the, the thing is that this was always applied to your movement. So you, were, you would be balancing on top of a scaffolding at a height with no safety net. What do you do? You breathe. You jump off a bridge at night in the dark waters of a Seine River in Paris. What do you do? You breathe. You know, like you really are in control of your breath. It's, it's, it was every, everywhere in the work. It was. So that was his, uh, one, of, one of those uh, teaching things where he would, we, he would have several followers. I was one of them. And he would catch us all the time having those subconscious behaviors. Like, it was not necessarily me, but hey, here, you have tension in your shoulders. You're shrugging your shoulders. Why? Here you have tension in your hand. Your hand is like this. Why is it like this? Why is it just not relaxed? Why are you not present in your body right now? Why are you not mindful? Why are you holding your breath? Why are you tense? Why are you making all those facial expressions that are unnecessary? Why? Because you have emotion. Why do you have emotion? Why are you shy? Etc. Etc. So, you see, I've learned to give myself that kind of feedback. I've learned to self-examine in e at every level. That doesn't mean that I see everything, but that means that I see a lot of things about my behaviors that most people cannot see about their own. Yeah. Breathing yeah, is, is one of those core, core aspects of your physical behavior. There's just the way you hold your head, your stance your gestures, the levels of tension or relaxation in your body, the calmness and steadiness and strength of your breath, all of that connects together to make you either in control and healthy and confident or less. That's one of the aspects of what I talk about when I say that life is the practice of energy at every level. That those are some of the aspects, not the only ones. Because we want to talk about the emotional, the spiritual, the, the, the food, of course, the environment, everything, the family, love, sexual relationships, all of that, all of it. Having a God or not having a God, praying or not praying, meditating or not meditating. What do you do with every second of your precious life? How is it spent? Towards what is it directed? How do you, how do you use it? With what agenda and how? I mean, life's big questions right there, right? All very deep, very deep. And, and I love what you're talking about, about these relatively small things like our posture or our facial expression, you know, the way we're holding our hand that can be an indicator of something much deeper or much bigger and cultivating the self-awareness, right? And all the benefits that can come along with that and, and everything you're, you're saying. I've only in the last few years started to really get keyed in on the importance of breath to the quality of our experience, to the results we produce. I remember doing a program with, um, with the mystic Sadhguru. And I remember he said that if you, if you know how, if you observe someone's breath, you can know their past and their future. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, maybe, 
maybe a mystic or maybe a normal human with practice. So anyway, okay. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for including that in the book. As I said, um, I've taken a lot away from that. I haven't found the partner to do that, that exercise with the partner yet, but I'm, I'm, I'll, I'm going to do that. I, I don't even remember if I put, I probably didn't put that and you don't want to, well, you may want to find a partner to that one, but remember my, my clinic teacher would tell me, hey, it's the strongest uh, muscle in your body. Yeah. And so in my workshop, I would demonstrate that by picking the heaviest guy I could find in the whole gang of participants and have him stand, you know, step with one foot and stand on one foot on my abdomen and keep breathing. And I would keep breathing, and then people could see him elevating and descending and elevating and descending. Not, I never said, hey, it's comfortable, yeah. like easy piece of cake. I always said, of course it's, it's, it's not comfortable. Of course, I wouldn't want that to last forever. But look, I am not breathing through my chest nonetheless. I still can breathe through my abdomen, and it shows you how much power you have right there. And you too can develop the same power. In the interest of time, um, I want to make sure to ask you a few other questions that I think listeners will enjoy and benefit from. So let me, let me shift us now to the lightning round. These questions, by the way, are designed – you can take as long as you want to answer them. I've designed them for me to give you a concise question. Number one, please complete the following sentence. Life is like a heart. Number two. What's something at which you wish you were better? Love. There's always a possibility to be better at love. I'm not saying I'm bad. I'm saying I, I will always wish that I'm better at love. Mm. Number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a T-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? I love you, God. Hmm. All right. Number four. What book, other than your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? Conversation with God. Neil Donald Walsh. Uh-huh. Whom okay. I met in Paris a long time ago. Wow. Amazing. Number five. You travel a ton. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? <laughs> that's not really a hack, but if I travel with my, with my wife and children, that just makes it much, much better than just being on my own. Yeah. So I don't know if that counts as a hack, but <laughs> it is mine. Yeah. Otherwise, like, you know, food. It's food yeah. that I bring that is not from the airport or the plane. What do you like to be sure you have with you, food-wise? Jerky. Hmm. Okay. All right. Number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Um... So definitely uh, taking that kind of risk that are 
like dealing with real danger in my practice, this have stopped. I mean, yeah, I have kids. I love, I love, um, I love my family. They love me. I cannot be missing. So definitely something I've stopped. Um, and uh, just something that I've, I've just made the decision very recently, actually, was um, to fully quiet down. And what I what I mean by that is that being a, a father of three young kids, uh, everything I've done to build MoveNet, you know, that company and then the book has taken from me so much time and energy and I've had so much on my plate and so much to do and I've been honestly skillfully juggling with all of that but that was just way too much work and at a pace that was too often too high pace and now I just really completely made the conscious decision that I refuse to be hurried I refuse to be hurried I just I have a, an agreement with myself that Whatever time, anything is going to take, I'm going to take the time so that because when you want to do too much or too fast, you actually make the decision to accelerate time. And that time acceleration is stressful that you like it or not. You may still feel young and have lots of energy and boundless you know, resources of energy to do it. But there will be a time where you can't do it anymore. And I felt that that time has arrived for me. So now I'm pacing, and it's brilliant. It's so much better. Yeah. Now, that's the kind of agreement you can make with yourself that will change your whole life, right? That's, that's beautiful. Number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? Okay, I'm not sure about Brian. I'm not sure about this question because uh, if I say Americans, then I'm making it, it somewhat implies a um, a bias, like a kind of cultural a generality about you know what I think about my fellow U.S. citizens, and I love my country. I love I love American people. They're not perfect. They're no culture is perfect. Well, so this being said, if there was a cultural generality that I can observe and I wish that more Americans were paying attention to is to actually be more relaxed. There's a ton of tension. And, you know, even people can... can look like they're relaxed and smiling and this and that but actually they're very busy in their head and there's a lot of tension in their head I think that um, compared to other that right now I'm in Mexico and you can say whatever you think about Mexico or Mexican people but overall and again that's a generality people are more relaxed there are pros and cons to that but I think that there's more benefits than issues with being relaxed and they smile more and they're just uh, more genuinely attentive to other people yeah I can say that yeah so that's I, I, maybe something that as a culture Americans could 
could be inspired by by it's not about you know teaching a lesson or making a judgment it's like we could be inspired by that yeah no i wish i wish every american knew that as well the value of that for sure okay so let me ask you this um if people want to learn more from you or connect with you what would you have them do um i'm not sure if I want people to be more, to learn more about me. <laughs> <laughs> or the work you do. Let's say that about MoveNet. That's, that's the thing is that, you know, I've not called my work the Rwanda Core Method. Right. It's not after my name. I have not branded me or my name because I never wanted people to be interested in me. I wanted people to have a tool in their hands that they can use and learn and implement, experiment to improve them. It's about, like, MoveNat, M-O-V-N-A-T, that's the name of my method for natural movement. That's what it is about. It's not about me. It's about the tool that you can learn, and so if you apply it, you will see that it will improve your life. Definitely. So there's the website called MoveNat.com, M-O-V-N-A-T.com, and, of course, the Practice of Natural Movement book is... My opus magnum, it's my, my, it's the work of a, of a lifetime, really. And um, it explains the natural movement philosophy, but it's also mostly a how-to. So what it is, really, it's the MoveNet Method book. It's not all about, it's not everything that the method is, but if you want to learn about this philosophy, but also, most important, this practice and how we can change your life you want to read that book yeah it's it's pretty amazing and um as i mentioned earlier you have programs that are available uh, i know at least all over the u.s are they offered internationally as well oh absolutely internationally actually so we have thousands of certified trainers uh, around the world and my team we have a movenet instructors team we hold workshops around the world so that's a lot in the u.s but that's also Europe and Asia and whatever, South Africa, Australia, Brazil soon. We've done China, Japan. So it's, uh, it's absolutely, it's an international community. Then uh, we're also present on, uh, pr- present, pardon my French, uh, on, um, on social media. We have uh, on Instagram. And then we have online coaching as well. We have an online course and we have certification. So you can either come and train with us, but you can also learn how to teach this. And it's a three-level certification. That's awesome. And what I'm currently working on, on a new website called naturalmovement.com, as you would expect, shocker. And uh, where the point is to turn my book into online video courses. So I'm currently working on that. I want to get certified in, in the work I do with coaching. I realize as I look back over the last seven years, so much of what I've learned is from here to here. It's from the neck up. It's not totally embodied. And I know it's benefited me to just practice some of what I've learned from you and others recently, Mark Devine and John Wineland and, and some others. So um, I want to do it. I think it's a brilliant move. 
I do want to be sure to let you know that I'm grateful for you making time to talk with me and everybody who's listening. One of the ways that I've endeavored to show that gratitude is by making a micro loan on your behalf. So I went online to kiva.org and made a hundred dollar micro loan to a woman in India. Her name is Santasi. She's 32 years old. She lives in West Bengal and she will use this money to purchase more grain um, that she will share in her retail business. She'll sell in her retail business. So this woman makes, she's got four members in her family, makes about 129 US dollars a month, but she'll use this to help improve life for, for her family and those around her. So anyway, that's in your honor, that small gesture. So thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. I'd, I'd just like to ask um, a couple questions, a few questions maybe about the creative process and about writing. You've taken a lifetime of learning and experience and knowledge, all of this, put it between two covers. And I'm wondering what you learned in the process of trying to distill all of this thought, all of this experience, all of this wisdom into something that people can buy, people can read, they can understand, they can enjoy, they can benefit from. And I know that's, a, that's not an easy thing to do. And many, many people want to do that. But I'm wondering what you learned in the process of doing that, that other people might benefit from knowing. Was it like the power of routine? Was it, you know, how useful it is to have an outline, to have a good editor, to have a co-writer, to use a certain software? Like, is there anything at all like that, that other people might go, oh, that's the key that unlocks where I'm stuck? So, I don't know, my wife would tell you that I'm a Virgo, and so is she, and so that we're very organized in here. Um, and um, so it starts, for me, it starts with the critical thinking. I've always had that critical thinking as far as I can remember. And so already in the design of the curriculum for the MoveNet certification, Ari had to detail a number of insights and, and, and to structure all of that curriculum. So doing the book was no different, but it was just a much bigger task because of the the sheer volume of information that I was willing to share. Uh, eventually, it became a 480 pages textbook, and again, 200 pages were cut, and people say it's a textbook, and people are like, whoa, it's like, it takes so long to read, and that's too much information. Never say, no, it's not too much. It's amazing. It's an encyclopedia. It should be sold for $200 or more. Uh, and others are like, that's not what I expected. I wanted primer. I wanted something simpler. You know what? That book is the best version of delivering my knowledge that I, I could come up with after working on it for years and going through revision and revision and, and reading and rereading and reproofing and, and re-editing and reading again and rewriting again. It's just, it's been a, a distillation process where I wanted to be zero fat in the end, like nothing to be changed, nothing to be added or removed. That's the result I wanted. Maybe one thing that I have not learned is to be less critical and to be less perfectionist. I have not learned that. The book did not learn, taught me because 
I would not have published that book if I had not been fully satisfied with the results. Yeah. And, and that's so valuable, though, that to hear you say that, that you never lost that what, what, might, what might be called a perfectionistic tendency, but you managed to complete it anyway. Because I think many people run into that and they stop. What allowed you to keep going beyond that? Because, okay, when I moved to the U.S., it was in 2009. In 2009, I went to an immigration lawyer in Las Vegas uh, to get my visa. I got granted what's called an O-1 visa for exceptional exceptional abilities. means a person who brings something very unique to the community or, you know, the country, economy, whatever it is. Um, And uh, it was already part of that application for that visa that I I had a mock-up of the book. And the title was The Philosophy and Practice of Natural Movement Already. And the photo was me like holding and carrying a massive stone in my lap. That's 2009. The book is published 10 years later. So either I'm a very lazy guy or I got crazy busy so crazy that I could not work on that book or I'm very slow or all of that, I don't know. But the thing is, it took me all that time to, for all my f- ideas and all my principles and all my work to mature into and to finally be manifested into that material. And I'm sorry, I was not going to do it five years later just because five years le- be ahead already had announced it and it was already five years later and like, whoa, what people must be thinking, what is he doing? He's announced that book five years earlier. Well, sorry, guys. It will be in 10 years, actually, 10 years later that I will publish my my book. It's on my terms. It's my work. It's not. It's nobody else's. I'm not doing it because I want to be, because it's going to sell and I need the money or whatever it is. I'm not going to do it, rush it just because I want to be a published author, I want to be a name or whatever. It's going to be published when I know that it's it's been done, that it's ready, that there's nothing else I can think about that I need to work on, that I, that I need to include that would be missing from that manuscript. Period. That's integrity. No, no that's powerful. So my last my last question, and thank you for sharing that, you have created something that might might be called a movement, right? It might be accurately thought of as that. And clearly you've enrolled many other people. They, they also share this desire, this vision, and they've, they've come aboard to participate in some way as a trainer, as a participant, whatever. What have you learned that has been essential for you in building an organization where you have leaders who can effectively train, coach, lead others through material you developed? Well, it's simply uh, trust. Well, it's not that I was not able of trust. It's just that, you know, you trust people when you observe, you get to know them, you observe that they are the right people for you in your relationship, that it is friendship, that it is love, that it is work. You know, those three principles of sustainable relationships are respect, trust, and then satisfaction. So for a leader to have a team 
you either recruit or people come to you and say, hey, I'd like to work for you. I'm interested in your work. And then you assess them and then you start a relationship with them and then you start with a little something and then the relationship starts to increase on that basis, on the basis of those three principles, which are trust, respect, and satisfaction. And there you go. And then ultimately, when, depending on your, say, levels of demand, how demanding you are in those respects of trust, respect, and relation, and, uh, and satisfaction, ultimately, you trust people. So right now, for instance, uh, I have a team and uh, they do they do everything so that I can focus on other creative tasks, which, had, which, for instance, I could never have written this book if I didn't have a team that was doing everything. So I've learned to I've learned to have a team and I've learned to 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 delegate. That's the thing. Actually, it's it's more that thing is that I, I've had a hard time delegating anything. I like to do things. I've always been a loner. I've always been somebody who just likes to be to, to be taking care of business, taking care of things myself. And then um, now I actually love to do the opposite. I love to delegate. I've learned that along the years. Be like, <laughs> now when I have a new project, I'm like, how can I have this be mostly taken care of by, the, by a person who just has the skills to do it so I don't have to learn new skills again yeah. and um, so that I don't have to put my mind into this again and so that I can just enjoy my life and, and only take care of the creative part of it. Now that, that's amazing and I know many people are looking for that and delegation is a simple concept. Right? So I'll, you know, but how do you make delegation work? What makes it effective for you? You first... Uh, first you make the decision that you delegate truly you don't be like oh I think I could delegate but in, in the back of your mind you're like uh, you know what I'm going to do it myself anyways you really have to to make that decision and then secondly it depends on the type of project of course and you have different people with different kind of skills so I'm going to look at the kind of skills people have, but then I'm also going to look at the kind of people people are. And in that regard, you know, there's that that kind of intuition that plays into that comes into play where you 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 intuitively know people are the right people to work with first. I look at the integrity I look at people's integrity. It doesn't matter if you're the best at what you do. Uh, if you're not a good person and I can't tell. If I if I don't feel that you have integrity, then you're not in my team, period. Yeah. That's the people who are in my team are awesome people. They're just good people. They're not just smart and skilled. They're just good people. I know that I can trust them. I know that they're good. They have good intentions. And that's yeah. very important. And all of them, that they are uh, the, the people from instructors or, or just marketing people, whatever they are. It's just... I know that they're good people and that energy is very important because when you start to deal with egos and you know deceptive people and stuff like that it can ruin a a, a team and uh, every successful company is made of a good team 
So the team matters a lot, but the team is made of individuals. So when you recruit a new person, you got to make sure that they're not going to be, you know, the worm in the apple. Yeah. Again, thank you. I mean, I, I could go on and, and maybe someday there's a part two, maybe after I do the certification in this. Um, but at any rate, I, I suspect we'll meet in person somewhere someday. Don't know when or where, but I'll look forward to it. And in the meantime, I'll be following along, reading your blogs and finishing the book. So thank you very much for being here today. I hope you have a wonderful time on your boat. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this convo. You have an awesome, super positive energy, really. Um, also a, a quietness of the mind that I can sense. And so thank you so much. It was an enjoyable time. And I hope that our audience has enjoyed it. Yes, I think they will. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.